Today we're in our, continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, and we have a doozy of a text. I could spend two hours on this easy, and you'd be interested, I'm sure. Um, let me just read the text for you straight through, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Now I command you, commend you, brothers, that you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you, that I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Already you see where we're going, right? This is going to be a doozy. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is a disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What? All right, moving on. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of the man, nor man of the woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Hey, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This be the word of the Lord. <laughs> Are you ready? Interesting, isn't it? Um, now, I'll say this again, because I, I, especially for those of you who are visiting. I like to preach through whole books of the Bible. And I do that for two reasons. One is because it forces me to deal with things I would never deal with. <laughs> I would never say, I think I'm going to talk about head coverings tomorrow. I would never do that. Um, but when you go through the Bible, it forces you to deal with things that are hard. So we're going to have to deal with this. How many of you have read this passage on your own private time and wondered, what's that all about? So aren't you glad we're going to talk about it a little bit today? Uh, so, so we're going to talk about it. The other thing that I want to say is this is probably, and I, and I may be wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty almost, almost wanting to say definitely the most difficult text in the entire Bible for three reasons. One is it's clearly cultural. We have no idea what he's talking about. He asked the question, judge for yourself, is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? And his answer that he wants is, of course, of course not. But you and I are like, yeah, <laughs> why not? It's a very, it's a cultural issue. He's talking about hairstyles, men with long hair, women with short hair. We completely don't even listen to that anymore, right? Men have long, I used to have long hair, by the way. I forgot I was going to put a picture of myself with long hair on the screen. Uh, I'll bring it for you next week. Um, and women, short hair. We, women have short hair all the time. Um, so it's a cultural issue. That makes it difficult. It's also offensive. Raise your hand if you were offended as I read any of this. We live in a, cult, a time period in culture in America, an in, in individualistic society, that this would rub uh, many women the wrong way, for good reason, I think. So it's difficult because it's cultural. It's difficult because it's defensive. It's also difficult because it's just difficult. Did you see, I hope you noticed that as I was reading it on the screen, there was highlights, there was underlines, there was bold, there was italics, there was different colored text. 
I did all that on purpose to show you that as I was studying this text, all those highlights, all those bolds, all those underlines represented words or phrases that the commentators that I resourced would have four or five pages on. For instance, take the word ahead. Let's define what the word ahead means. Boom, 12 pages of different views and different understandings. So it's difficult because people argue about what every word means in this text. We'll look at some of that today. If you look at the picture on the screen, there's pictures of people in head coverings all over the world. But here's the first thing I want to say before we get into this text. Um, head coverings, though you and I don't necessarily think much about them, there is very little cultures or religions in this world that don't have some sort of stance on head coverings. You know what I'm saying? Almost everywhere you go, there's men wear head coverings, Jews wear yarmulkes, Muslims wear turbans, right? G girls wear burqas, Mennonites wear you know, little cowboy hats or whatever. Um, <laughs> I mean, there, there's, there's, there's rarely a religion or culture that doesn't have a position on what head coverings is, whatever it is. Evangelical, modern, American Protestants we don't, we, we, don't, we don't, we have nothing, right? Baseball cap. I used to remember going to church seeing ladies with all kinds of big hats, right? The hat ladies, we called them. And, and, and I, I learned later that they kind of had a position on head coverings, why they would wear these. So it's very confusing. The only thing that's not confusing about this text is the structure of it. Um, when you study the Bible, there are tools you can use to understand what this text is about. And one of those tools is called a chiastic structure. It's called chiastic because the chi in the Greek alphabet is an X. And so a chiastic structure kind of forms the shape of an X in the sense that the bullet points go out. And then when it reaches that middle point, it comes back in, repeating itself like, like bookends. So for instance, this chiastic structure of this text says the first point A, he, he complements tradition. B, he says it's shameful, right? C, he talks about social improprieties. You would never go out in public like this. D, he talks about creation. Men were made from God and women from men. And then E, E, that point E that goes way out here, at the end of the chiasm, is the thrust or the main point of the whole text. And then he backs up and does all of that again with D prime creation, C prime social impropriety, B prime shame, and then ending again on traditions and customs, like bookends. See, do you see that? So the question we have to ask ourselves is what is E? What is E in that chiastic structure? Because whatever it is, that's the thrust or the central theme of the text. So let me show you what that is. It's verse 10, and verse 10 says this. That is why, see, there you go, there's the thrust. As he's making an argument, he says, that is why a wife or a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And then he's going to repeat his argument with different shades of, of, of repeating. <laughs> So what does that mean? Well, it means that this passage is about why a woman should wear a head covering. That's what the passage is about. And I can tell by looking at everyone in the room that you have a position on this. Right? Right? You do. One of the commentators I read, Mr. Garland, said, this passage is not about wearing hats to church or about proving that women are intended to be subordinate to men. But wait a minute, I thought that's what it's about. It is what it's about, but it's not about that. What does that mean? Sometimes when we read the Bible, we have to determine what the thing's about 
and if it's universal or if it's cultural. A universal truth means it's true for all people, for all places, for all times. And when Jesus says, love your enemy as yourself, is that a universal truth? If you live in Nazi Germany, is it still true? Yeah, you may not want to love them, but you have to love your enemies. It's true. And then you have to determine, how do we know if something's cultural? And can I just tell you this? It's very scary, and you have to be very cautious when you start to say, this is cultural, so I'm not going to apply it. Okay? You have to be very careful with that. Don't you think the Bible says something? You don't easily say, oh, it's cultural. The Bible says you can't divorce, right? You shouldn't divorce. Oh, that's cultural. Well, you better be careful. You know what I mean? It is in the Bible, especially if it's in the Bible more than once, especially if it's in the Bible a dozen times. I wouldn't throw it away as cultural. Head coverings is in the Bible not very much, right? And clearly it's cultural because it's not dealing with things that you and I can even understand. We don't even understand what's going on with head coverings. And he's talking about hairstyles, men with long hair, women with short hair. That's clearly a cultural issue too. So what this commentator is saying is it's cultural. The concept of ball caps and head coverings and wearing your hair down long or wearing your hair up in public or whatever, that's all, putting a bun in your hair before you go to church, that's all cultural, and obviously we live in a different culture. But what's underneath the cultural customs and, and, and text here? So, so I think that obviously it's about co head coverings. But we don't really necessarily care about head coverings, do we? But there's something underneath that that's bubbling up, that's giving it the, the power that that we need to listen to, and that is gender identities. And that's the part that you're mostly interested in anyway, right? If I stood here and told you, okay, next week I want to see all the women with head covering and all the men, make sure your hair's short, um, you'd be like, that's ridiculous. But the underpinning issue is gender identity, and that's what we need to get clarified in our hearts. What does that mean? What does that look like? So, and that's the part that scares you the most, isn't it? <laughs> Where is he going? That's what you're thinking right now. Reason if you're thinking that. Okay, one of you, two of you, maybe five. All right. Let me tell you where I'm going with it so I don't lose you, because I think this is extremely fascinating and extremely important. I'm going to come from a position that's commonly called complementarianism. I believe that Paul is a complementarian, and I'm going to show you why. He, he's going to, he, he, you, you saw it in that text. He's, in other words, he believes that there are roles for men and women, and those roles complement each other. So men and women are equal. He says that in his text. They're equal. There's no difference in equality or value or competencies between a man and a woman. They're equal. A man can do what a woman can do, and a woman can do what a man can do, and sometimes a woman thinks that she can do it even better than a man can, right? There's no, there's no difference in value or competencies between a man and a woman. But, but do we agree there's a difference between a man and a woman? Yeah, there is. And because of the difference between a man and a woman, God has designed those difference, differences, and it's, it's glorious be a man, and it's glorious to be a woman, and a woman shouldn't feel any inferiority to the man, and the man should never feel any superiority to a woman. The complementarian says men and women are equal, but they have different roles, different functions, they're different, and their differences complement and complete one another. Complementarianism is kind of in the middle of two other views. The other view on the very far right side would be chauvinism or authoritarianism, or hierarchicalism, if you will. And that view believes that men are um, the authoritarian, and they need to say it, and she needs to obey it. Um, he's the authority, and she's the subordinate. 
you know that that view exists, right? You do. Complementarianism says that's wrong. That's wrong. And then if you go further, you get misogyny, which is that men don't even like women, right? They think women are evil and the women need to be set up. And so let me just say something about that real quick before I go any further. Um, can I just acknowledge that the church has done great damage in regards to that view, chauvinism? I mean, when you read a text like I just read, you can see why they may come up with what they come up with, but I'm going to show you why what they came up with was wrong. That, that, that the Bible does not, and the Christian position is not, that men are on top and women are below, that men are authoritarian and women need to listen, and that men are dominant and women are subdominant. It doesn't mean that. Never meant that. But we've treated like that in history. There's there are still people who think that way. And it's created terrible damage women, but not just to women, but to the divine order that God designed that's beautiful, and to our children who saw it wrong, and got, they got messed up, and to the gospel, I'll say as well. Um, I sat on an elder board once at a church, where I was an elder at, at this church, and a man wanted to speak to the elders. So he came in to speak to the elders, and when he got there, he told the elders, I need you, elders, to go into my home and tell my wife and kids that they need to submit to my authority. Whoa, there's so many things messed up about that. First of all, he saw his authority as a power that he wielded over his family. And ironically, they didn't listen to him. <laughs> so he thought he could go to the elders who had, in his mind, a bigger stick to go and make his kids and his, and his wife obey him. You see the, the irony of this? Authority in scripture or headship in scripture is not a power in which men wield. It is a responsibility in which men often buckle under. It is not something that we say, this is my right, this is how I wield my power in my home. It is different. It is my responsibility, which I don't, I, I, I as a man, I buckle under that responsibility. I don't, I don't think that I do a good job at all leading my home. I don't. But I'm trying. And I see it as a responsibility, not a power that I wield. The other view on the other end of that is egalitarianism, which comes from the word equality, which views men and women as equal. I want you to know the complementarians also view men and women as equal. But this equality goes so far as to say there's no difference between men and women, that everything a man can do, a woman can do at home, in the church, everywhere. Men and women are equal, and there's no difference. There is no Jew, no, no, no Greek, no slave, no free, no man, no woman. We're all equal in Christ. And unfortunately, that, I believe, undercuts, to, to, to their own detriment, really, undercuts the biblical design of order. Order which still brings about equality and value and human dignity, but yet still order. So let me give you a couple definitions of complementarianism. This is from Wikipedia, by the way. So this isn't like... Deep, heavy theological definition. This is a wiki definition. Okay? Complementarianism is a theological view that men and women have different but complementary roles and responsibilities in marriage, family life, religious leadership, and elsewhere. God has created men and women equal in their essential dignity and human personhood. So men and women are equal. There's no difference. However, they're different and they're complementary in function. Does that make sense? So we're going to talk now, real quickly, for about five or seven minutes, but just about the text about head coverings, and then I want to come below that, or you know, after that, and talk about how do we apply this in our homes, 
Why is this important? Why is this even important? Mike, why don't you just skip these 14 verses? Really, okay? You guys excited so far? Good, I think it is very interesting. And do you feel like you're on safe ground? I hope you do, because I shudder to think of the dangers that chauvinism has caused in the, I grew up in a church that believed that women should shut up and men should rule. You, know, you see what I'm saying? I've seen a lot of damage. You've seen it, I know you've told me stories. Um, and here's what happens, when that happens, that's an abuse, that's an abuse of biblical headship. And another way, of, another way that men have abused biblical headship is they've tried to run from that, and they went the other way, which is to be neglectful of their responsibilities. Does that make sense? So now instead of being responsible as men, they've neglected their responsibilities, they make the money, they bring home the bacon, and when they come home, they check out. They watch sports, and they're not leading their children, and they're not leading their wife, and they're not nourishing and protecting and providing. They're not being men, they're being Loafers, does that make sense? And I believe that in our country, there are still people who have that problem of abuse, domination, authoritarian view. There's still women, I think, who would still say, yeah, my husband says stuff like that to me. But there are more women who say, I wish my husband would just rise up. Am I right? I wish my husband would just lead. If my husband would lead, especially in spiritual things, I would gladly follow. Am I right? There's more women here than there are men. Yes, I'm right. And if those men were leading, these women here would be like, give me a man who leads and I'll follow. All right, let's look at the text before I get on a soapbox. No, because I really do believe that as a pastor, as a counselor, in, 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 in my experience, Especially in marriage, when you start dealing with issues, it really comes down to a fact that they've messed up the order, that they've not respected the divine order. Not that he's on top and she's on bottom. That's what not, not what I mean by order. I mean by the ordering in which God has placed things. And if the man is leading and then the woman is, 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 is using her gifts correctly, then you've got a beautiful home and a beautiful family and a beautiful marriage. But whenever these things get turned around, that's whenever you got guys coming to church saying, y'all need to tell my wife to listen to me, and, and it just gets ugly. Okay, verse 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Two things I want to say about this verse. First of all, I told you it was not hierarchy, right? It's not. If it was, Paul would have said it differently. You notice how Paul said it? He said the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. If he wanted it to be hierarchy, he would have put God to Christ first, then Christ to man second, and then man to woman Third, he would have put it in a hierarchical um, picture so that we would see God is here, Christ is here, man is here, woman is down here. But it's not what he did. He said Christ is here, woman is here, God is below that. So he's, he's, show, he's doing that on purpose to say it's not hierarchy, okay? And he's also showing us that the divine order is built into the Trinity. Within the Trinity, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but it's not a hierarchical relationship between the two of them. They're one God. They're not one, three people. Or, you know what I mean? They're one God. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit are equal, perfectly equal, mutually submissive to one another. And yet the Bible teaches us over and over and over again that the Son does nothing except for what the Father tells him to do. Isn't that what Jesus says? 
And Jesus says, the Spirit will lead you to say nothing except for what I tell him to tell you. And so there is unity, equality, perfection within the, the Godhead, and yet there is submission. The Son submits to the Father, the Spirit submits to the Son. And it does nothing to the value or the dignity of each of those pieces. I shouldn't say pieces, that's heretical. Each of those persons within the Trinity. Do you see that? And so in the same way, there's God, Father, Son, I mean, God, Father, Son, Spirit. There's man, woman, children. There's all kinds of order in creation that God has placed divinely for beautiful purposes, but even though we often mess it, mess it up. So this is not about hierarchy. This is simply to establish that everyone has a head. And a head is a good thing, not a bad thing. Oh, that brings me to that next word, head. I told you there was like 12 pages there, right? What does the word head mean? <clears throat> um, the word head, oh, it's still, you're going to hear, if you study or read or you watch the news, there are, this will always be in the, in the debate. What does the Bible mean when it says headship? Um, the Greek word for head is kephala, if you wanted to know. And it can typically be translated three ways. First, hierarchy. But I've just shown you why that's not the right way. But it is correct way to use it in modern English, right? The head of an organization, right? Obviously, there's a hierarchy there. He's the president. It could also be, mean source. This is what the um, feminist movement wants to say it means. It means source. Um, and it makes sense because Paul will say later that the woman came from the man, the rib of the man. So the source of the woman is the man. But it doesn't work. Do you really want to be that? Does that help any? It doesn't. And it also messes other things up, too, because God is Father is not the source of Jesus. They're one. They're one God. God, you know, Jesus did not come from within the Father. They're one God. And it would be heretical to say that he came from God. And besides that source, as a head thing, it's, it doesn't solve their problem any, the feminist problem. It still means that something comes from the source to the thing under the source. That's actually the way the Bible tends to talk about it. The head is on the top of the body, and the head nourishes the body, and the head feeds the body with words and, and, and hearing and thinking. And, and so the husband, Ephesians 5 says, nourishes and protects and feeds his body, his, which is his wife, which Paul says is also his own body. So it doesn't solve the problem. The next word, the third way to see head is prominent, which is the way a complementarian sees it the way most commentators see it. What does prominent mean? It just means head, not hierarchy head, but prominent head. Um, how can you be prominent and equal at the same time? That's the question you're thinking. Well, um, it's very, I've got three children. One is the firstborn, and the other two are not. The firstborn is prominent, right? Is his value any greater than the other two? No. Is his, is his competencies any greater than the other two? Somewhat because he's older, but as a human person, no. But there, he has different responsibilities, does he not? The firstborn always, even in our culture, don't you say, hey, you're the oldest. Act like it. Lead like it. Be like it. So it's not about value or competencies. It's about prominencies. This is your place in the order of things. For man, I'll put it this way. The man is the head of the house. Whether you want him to be or not, whether he really is or not, whether he wears the pants or not, doesn't matter. When it's all said and done, he's the head of the house. If the bills aren't getting paid, if the house is falling apart, if the kids are running amok in the city, whose fault is it inevitably? The man's, right? He's the head of the house. He may not act like the head, but he is. L listen to John Piper. Headship is the divine calling of a husband 
to take primary, not sole, okay, not sole responsibility. The woman has a responsibility too, and in many times she's better at it. <laughs> but it's his primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, provision from the home. I don't think that I would have many people argue with that. No, would you agree that the primary responsibility for provision, protection, and leadership in the home is the, is the man? I think most of you would say yes. Does that mean that she isn't good at it? No. Does that mean that she shouldn't do it? No. She should do it, and she does do it. And mama, you know, gets what mama wants, right? If mama ain't happy, nobody ain't happy, right? <laughs> Thanks for laughing. <laughs> so, so there is... Um, uh, equality there, but the primary responsibility does fall to the man. That's the way God designed it, and it's a beautiful thing, actually, because if you don't have it, you have fatherless generations, all right? <laughs> a great way to think of it, the way I like to think of it, is a dance. A dance is a beautiful thing, is it not? Especially if two beautiful people are dancing. <laughs> it's not so beautiful when two not-so-beautiful people are dancing, I'll tell you that. <laughs> people know how to do choreography. My wife, when I met her, um, she was an aerobics instructor. She was athletic. She was, she was intimidating. She could take me out. You know what I mean? I really do. I went to an aerobics class where she was teaching kickboxing, and like she was throwing these punches like a like a guy throws punches, you know, and you know, perfect position. And I was like, I never thrown a punch. You know, I felt like a girl, and I was like, she's never going to marry me now after seeing me throw a punch. And when I found out that she loved ballroom dance, she would dance frequently with her girlfriends, they'd go out dancing together, and so I thought, I'm going to impress her by taking her to dance lessons. Um, bad idea, right? Because she knows how to dance, I don't. So I, I take her to these ballroom dance lessons, and these guys are teaching us how to, you know, do the dance. See how, see how great I am at this? And um, what, what do you know about dancing? There's order in the dance, right? Who leads when one dances? The man. Is that, does that mean that he's better than her? My wife is way better than me at dancing. <laughs> and as we were learning how to dance, I learned how to lead. And I also learned, thankfully, that she needed to follow. <laughs> Sometimes we would step on each other's toes and the man would say, you need to let him lead, even if he's leading wrong. <laughs> you would dance, it would be much more fun and much prettier, even if he's leading wrong, if you follow him, than if you try to lead him when he's leading. I'm like, yeah, well, she can lead. She's better at this than me. No, 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 you need to lead. This is the way it goes. And there's a way that a man leads, too. A man doesn't grab her hands and pull her. Some of you women are glad that I'm saying this, I'm sure. You don't you pull her over here and dip her over there and spin around over here, and yeah, that was fun. <laughs> That's not how you should lead in a dance, right? Here's what I learned. The way a man and a woman dance is like he has his hand like this. She, you don't even have to hold her hand. Hand like this and her hand like this. And he leads, I don't know if you can see this, simply by doing like this. She follows simply by feeling that. And so he says, if you're going to dip her, important, women like to be dipped. If you're going <laughs> to, at least mine does, if you're going to dip her, you give her like a two-second heads up, and you say, put your hand up like this. And so she, so she follows your hand. She goes up. She knows a dip is coming, right? Or a spin is coming. I put my hand up like this. That means I'm going to twirl you next, right? Up, twirl. <laughs> you know, this, this this, up, she knows it's coming, twirl, yeah, and then, and then, okay, so, so the up is the twirl, and then this hand is the dip, right, up, twirl, stroke her back like this, she feels it, that means dip, dip, and it's beautiful, right, and if I want her to dip a little bit more, a little bit more, right, she kicks a leg out, and it's great, 
Isn't it beautiful? It is. And that's how a man leads. And that's how a woman follows. And it has nothing to do with dignity. It has nothing to do with value. It has nothing to do with competency. But it has everything to do with the correct order. And when the order is right, it's beautiful. And that's the way God designed it. Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, which is why you and I took our hat off when we prayed. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since if it's the same as shaving. Um, I want you to see here, though, that Paul is admitting and assuming that the woman is praying and prophesying. Do you see that? All your life you've heard that women weren't supposed to talk in church, right? This is two verses in the Bible that says that, and I can explain that later. Um, but here they're praying and prophesying. They're prophesying. <laughs> that means that God is speaking to them, and they have something to say. That's different than just praying out loud. You see what I'm saying? So there's a woman is praying and is prophesying. That's, I wanted you to see that. But there is an order in which she needs to do it. Paul takes for granted, Garland says, that the woman may pray and prophesy in the assembly as long as they were in an appropriate head covering. This is an astounding fact, at least, for a group rising from a Jewish synagogue in which women never spoke. It's a big deal. So do you see how we kind of took it the wrong way? Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image. I, I thought I should talk about this. Since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. What does that mean? Sounds like the man is better than the woman, doesn't it? But it doesn't. It, is, it doesn't mean that. For a man was not made from a woman, but a woman was made from a man. Neither was man made or created for a woman, but a woman for man. Let me explain that a little bit. First of all, Paul says of the man that he was created, man is created in the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man, not the image of man. That's a big deal. So remember I said God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Mankind, Genesis 2 says God created them um, in his own image, male and female, he created them, which means he created them, male and female, in his image. So it takes two, I believe, to complement and to complete the image of God. God is not man or woman, and we are made in God's image. You know, the man and the woman complete and, and complement the image of God. Does that make sense? So man and woman are the image of God. Man is the glory of God because man was created by God. His first, his first creation, the, the pinnacle of creation was God created animals and fish and birds, and then he created man, and that was his glory. He saw it wasn't good for him to be alone, so he made a help meet for him and gave him his wife, and he took the wife out of his rib, gave it to him, gave it to him, right? Gave the woman to him, and he said, whoa, man, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is perfect. At last, I find what I'm looking for. And so God gave the woman to man as his glory. I was talking to my wife about this today. She's like, that's a beautiful picture. I want to be my man's glory. Why, why would you not want to be the glory of a man? Does it sound like it makes you inferior? It might sound that way, but maybe you're thinking of it wrong. You have children, right? Do you want your children to be your glory? That because they exist, they, in a sense, glorify me. Look, that's mine. Look, that, he looks just like me. He acts just like me. I know that's not so glorifying, but it's, <laughs> it's glorifying, right? And when a man has a wife, how much does she want to be treated like his glory? This is my woman. This is the, 
This is, whoa, man. You know what I mean? At last. Right? This is my glory. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. Matthew Henry says it this way. The, Matthew Henry, like old school, right? This is old commentary. Listen to him. The woman was formed out of the man, not out of his head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be his equal, from beneath his arm to be protected by him, and from near his heart to be loved by him. So these things are true. The man was first, the woman was second. She came from the man. But it doesn't mean that he rules over her and abuses her. It means that they're equal, but he still has a position to love and to care and to protect her. That's his, that's his, his glory, to protect her and to love her, and to cherish her. John Piper says this, These verses do not imply that Christ is not woman's head, nor that she is not the image of the glory of God. Christ is also her head. Paul's point is that man was created by God through Christ, and woman was created by God through Christ through man. The point is not to lessen the intimacy of her relationship to Christ. By the way, she's receiving prophetic revelation from Christ, what he says here, but to clarify and establish a relationship to man. There's an order. We need to be clear about the order. Also, Piper goes on to say, this is not a chain of command. The order is not Christ talks to the man and the man talks to Christ. And if she wants to talk to Christ, she needs to go to the man to talk to Christ, right? It's not a chain of command. Because the prophetess has direct access to and instructions from Christ, her divine head. Rather, the woman's acknowledgement of the man's subordinate human headship is an expression of her prior and controlling submission to Christ, who in creation appointed unique roles for man and woman. There are some commentators who believe that what Paul's are... Paul's trying to reestablish in the Corinthian church is that, sure, women may have freedom, and sure, you may live in a different culture where you could you know, throw off your head covering and, and throw off your submission to your husband, but when you do, you're not honoring Christ. If you want to honor Christ, honor your husband. It, there's an order. You can't, you can't, it's the same for children. You can't honor Christ and then dishonor your parents. You've got to honor your parents. Verse 10, here's the, here's the big verse, right? The theme verse. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. <laughs> um, I, I underline the word symbol because that word is not in the Greek. It's so ironic that your English translations put the word symbol in there because that's the best way that we can try to fix it. But take the word symbol out and listen to what it says. That is why a woman ought to have authority on her head. That's actually what it means. There's some, whatever the symbol is, the head covering, is a symbol of authority, but it doesn't lessen the fact that it's authority. And, and again, it doesn't mean inequality. We all have authority on our head, do we not? All of us do. Do you have authority on your head? One thing I know about postmodern culture is no one likes authority, right? But we all are under it. We all are. Oh, you know what? I don't know if I have time for this, but you may be interested. What is this about the angels? Can I, can I, are you interested? Again, 12 pages, <laughs> 12 pages below this, because Paul doesn't talk about angels. He just kind of throws out these three words, because of the angels, moving on. <laughs> what angels? What are you talking about? Everyone disagrees. No one agrees. It's very complex. But um, can I boil it down to you real quickly? I can give you 12 pages in one minute. Four views. First, this is saying that women should in, in, in imitate the angels. Um, as, as, as honoring to God and honoring to her husband. Um, 
in Isaiah 6 and in other passages, the angels are covering their face and covering their feet. You know, they're covering themselves as they worship God. So in church, when we worship God, a woman should cover the thing that is kind of sexually explicit about her, her hair and her head. You'll cover that because we're worshiping God. That is why in some cultures women wear burqas and wear head coverings, right, to cover up that sexuality. That's one view. A second view is angels really should be translated messengers, and it just means the elders or the bishops of the church. I don't like this view. I never liked this view. The same view in Revelation 1 through 4. Remember when Jesus says to the, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, right, and they say, what, there's angels looking over that church? No, it's probably talking about the elders of the church. You know, I, I never even liked that view either. I do think that there might be angels looking over the church. The third view is lustful angels. <laughs> which is an obscure view from Genesis something or another where there, I don't know if you remember this text or not, but there were angels who looked upon the women and fell in love with them and had sexual relationship with them and created a whole generation of people called the Nephilim, which were giants. Do you remember this? Yeah, you probably don't. This is one little passage in Scripture that, that teenage boys like to talk about. Probably, not, probably doesn't mean that. Probably doesn't mean that the angels are looking at the women lustfully, so therefore she should cover herself. I don't think that that means that. The most interesting one to me, and the one I'm going to run with, is... There are angels present in worship. And so, because God has ordered things a certain way, you should respect that order and, and bear in mind that worship is a, is, is a serious occasion, that angels are present even. I could give hundreds of verses in Scripture where when men and women in, church, in, in the Bible are worshiping, angels are present, literally, physically, and spiritually. Think about that for a second, though. I think this, is, this would be helpful even if you agree with that interpretation or not. When you come to church, what if we came to church believing that there were angels present? The Bible does say when two or more are gathered, I am there also. Angels usually accompany Christ. It might change the way we worship a little bit. Angels! My heart needs to be in a different place, I think, right? I need to be serious about this moment. Angels are here. Okay, so this is a side step. Let's move on. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for a woman was made for man, but man is also born of woman. So, so just bear in mind, all things come from God. So it doesn't matter. Man, woman, we're all independent of, of one another. We're not independent of one another. We, we're dependent upon one another. There's equality. So that when he comes back from his main point, he's going to, I think, bring out the equality of a woman. Then he says, judge not for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Paul's expected answer is no. Your and I's answer would be, whatever. <laughs> I don't see any problem with it, obviously. Finally, verse 14 says, does not nature itself teach you? And by nature, he means culture, because he says, a woman who has short hair, it's a disgrace to her, and a man who has long hair, it's a disgrace to him. In our culture, that's not unnatural. Right? It's not unnatural at all for a man to have long hair and a woman to have very short hair. So if anyone is inclined to be contentious, Paul says, just look at all the other churches. All the churches do this. You, Corinthians, should do it. Wear a head covering, okay? Now, like I said before, the issue Paul's dealing with is head coverings, but the issue that we need to deal with universally, theologically, is the issue of gender um, identity. What, is a man, what does it mean to be a man, and what does it mean to be a woman? And whatever that is, it doesn't mean they're unequal. It just means they're different, and they're different good. Let me read a couple quotes and then I'll close. Piper says this, it becomes clear then 
that the issue is secondarily head coverings, but primarily the preservation of the God-given distinctions between man and woman. In the way that they relate to each other, the head covering is culturally relative. The deeper differences of manhood and womanhood are not superior or inferior competency. There are rather deep dispositions of inclinations written on our hearts. I know this to be true. If you have children, you have boys and you have girls, you want to teach your boys how to be men, right? And if you have a woman, a girl, you want to teach her how to be a lady, respectful woman. Those things are written in our heart. Um, a man wants to be a man. Whether he has competencies or not, his thing inside of his soul is to lead, is to stand up, is to protect, is to get her done. That's what a man, bottom line is this. It's written deep in our soul what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. Listen to this. This is, this is the, the final definitions. At the heart of a mature manhood is the God-given sense or disposition, disposition or inclination that the primary, not sole, responsibility lies with him when it comes to leadership, initiative, provision, and protection. In his home, it's the man's primary responsibility to take care of his family, take care of his children, take care of his wife. And at the heart of mature womanhood is the God-given sense or disposition or inclination that none of this implies her inferiority, but that it will be a beautiful thing to come alongside such a man and gladly affirm and receive this kind of leadership and provision and protection. What a beautiful thing if the church can do it correctly. We don't go into chauvinism and we don't go into feminism. You don't want your kids to grow up in feminism. I know you don't. You definitely don't want your girls to grow up in chauvinism, or your men. I'm going to tell you a story. Um, as a pastor, all my life, I've been told, you're the man, you need to lead in your home. And I do believe it's probably the major issue in the church today. Like I said before, I want to say it again, look around you, this church is predominantly women. Our leadership board is made of women, and I know that those women would gladly see more men raise up, rise up in leadership. And I know all the women in the room would gladly see their husbands take a stand and be a leader in their church and a leader in their community and a leader in their homes. If I'm wrong, you can throw popcorn at me, but I know I'm not. But as a man, we buckle under that responsibility because we know we can't. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try, right? So the other night, I'm sitting at table. I'm done eating. I'm sitting there waiting for the kids to finish. My wife says, honey, why don't you tell the kids a Bible story? This is my wife leading me to be the leader. Do you see that? Oh, and I knew it. I saw it happening. I mean, she's like, why don't you tell them a Bible story? And I'm like, oh. this, that was passive, aggressive, you know what I mean? Leadership techniques. But she loves me, and she's very gentle, and she knows that the, the bottom line is, is that I am a spiritual leader in our home. I do tell our kids stories of the Bible. I do pray with them, but my wife prays with them every night. She reads Bible stories to them every night. She sings Bible songs. You know, Jesus loves me this I know every night. And they, have, they do Bible memory verses together every night. And I don't do that. I check out about 8.30, you know, and I'm done. I mean, she, she, she's in there singing. Sometimes when I'm awake, I go in there and I just weep, listen to it, listening to this voice, sing with mommy, Jesus loves me. So in many ways, she's better at it than me. But she says, why don't you tell a Bible story? So I'm like, all right, well, uh, have you guys heard this story? Yeah. How about this one? Yeah. How about that one? Yeah. Because they already know the Bible, Kelly. What's on the story? I'm like, all right. 
Let's, I, oh, I got a story you don't know. I start telling it. Can I just tell you that those boys licked that stuff up like it was candy coming down the mountain? I'm not, I'm not bragging about myself because I was just winging it, right? Some story. Those boys look like that little girl in that picture. She, and then when I was done with that story, he's like, another one. And I'm like, another one? Oh, man, okay. Five stories later, right, I'm like, well, let's just go lay down and get the Bible. Okay, so we lay on the bed, we got the Bible open, and we're reading, and they're just hungry. They want more and more and more and more. And I realized at that moment that there's something theologically correct and beautiful about the man leading his family. It's not wrong for the woman to do it at all, but there's something right, and it makes me cry. It breaks my heart to realize that I, I fail so much at that. Oh, what it would be like if we all, men, saw that and women encouraged that in this church. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this beautiful picture of womanhood.